Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. I'm very pleased today to introduce Huggy Rao. Huggy is Professor of Organizational Behavior and Human Resources at Stanford Graduate School of Business. His teaching specialties include leading organizational change, building customer-focused cultures, and organization design. Huggy's worked as a consultant for many large U.S. companies, and he's also worked with non-profit organizations such as the American Cancer Society. Huggy, together with Professor Robert Sutton, is co-author of Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less, which was published earlier this year. Hi, Huggy. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today. And I, first, I was wondering whether you could perhaps tell me a little bit about your work and any, any observations that you have about building and scaling social entrepreneurial organizations. of observations uh, that I hope might actually be of interest to you. Uh, clearly, when you look at entrepreneurs of any kind, the great thing about entrepreneurs is entrepreneurs are individuals who actually draw on their private kind of impulses, if you will, and instincts, and sometimes even disregard, if you will, uh, social pressure or, for that matter, social feedback. But the interesting thing about scaling is the very things that get you from zero to 100, they actually won't be effective getting you from 100 to 200. The things that got you from 100 to 200, they'll never work to get you from 200 to 500 and so on. So what this effectively means is successful scaling requires that you actually drop the tools that made you successful in the past. Now, this is particularly a challenge for social entrepreneurs in part because of two reasons. One is, like every entrepreneur, they have their own private instincts. But the other thing, of course, is what they bring to the social realm is a strong sense of advocacy. And one of the things, of course, with any kind of entrepreneur, uh, if you really need to scale, your initial ideas at best can be thought of as hypotheses. And your hypotheses may often be wrong. And what this requires is that you really need to change your hypothesis, either about the target market, either about the service you're offering, (laughs) either about how you're combining the service with other services, either about the distribution channel, either about the purchasing process. Whatever it is, you really need to revisit that hypothesis and you need to pivot. And the challenge, I think, particularly for social entrepreneurs is how nimble are they at pivoting? And if they do pivot, are they going to pivot at too late uh, a stage? That's a question. The other thing is, are social entrepreneurs willing to give up the very tools that actually make them effective and successful? And how important is it to have in place processes to ask questions and test hypotheses? Absolutely. I think in the startup phase, you can do the test and iterate. But once you've got the test and iterate, this is all part of, of course, the discovery of your business model, if you will, quote unquote. But the question is, 
even after testing and doing things, as you seek to scale the business model, that's sort of where you really begin to realize, oh my God, you know, the way we hired people as we were going from zero to 25, that same way we can't use it to get from 25 to 75. And on and on. I'm just sort of picking hiring as an example. It could really pertain to anything about the organization. Yes. So, as you quite correctly imply, Fergal, processes are important, but what's also kind of important is, if you will, the psychology, a mindset in a startup where you need to have confidence on the one hand and just a little bit of doubt on the other. Yes, yes. Uh, and how to balance that is the hard part. Unfortunately, many of the processes that we design in organizations, they're more biased towards confidence generation. We don't invest in doubt-enhancing kind of processes. So how do you balance both is a tricky sort of challenge. The other interesting sort of piece, I think, is that as founders become more powerful, as they manage more people, it turns out, and this is not just founders of social enterprises, it's any powerful person, it turns out that they tend to think uh, stereotypically instead of diagnostically. So when you become powerful in an organization, you actually, the world around you depends on you. And because the world around you depends on you, you don't need to do any diagnostic search. But on the other hand, if you're a low-power individual where you depend on the world, you really need to do a hell of a lot of diagnostic search. And so the complication is you can certainly design processes, but you really need to kind of think of psychology. And when I think of scaling and social entrepreneurs, I always look at three things. One is anatomy. The other is physiology the circulation of information, if you will, the counterpart to the circulation of blood in a human being. Anatomy, of course, has to do with the skeleton. And the third is psychology. Now, the processes you alluded to, in part, they get at the physiology, but how much they get at the psychology of the enterprise, the psychology of the management team, that is the key sort of question. Right, right. That's interesting. And 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 what are your thoughts about that? I mean, um, wh- 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 I mean, I guess it, it's a lot. To, I mean, it's 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 multifaceted. It's to do with the culture of the organization and the leadership as well, I suppose, and and and, uh, and other elements. Well, when it comes to you know the leadership team and so forth, what um, advice do you have in terms of you know uh, guidance for getting the psychology right? I, one is, I think, uh, you know, getting them to realize that really effective scaling isn't just a matter of mindless addition. It's actually smart subtraction. And you're constantly thinking of subtracting. If you have the subtraction ethos, where anything that you put in the organization, even for that matter of process to generate doubt, it, it would be a good idea for it to have a sunset clause. So it actually doesn't become a barnacle impeding the enterprise. And so I think it's the orientation of subtraction, which to my mind is the most important thing. What is it we need to drop? 
when do we need to drop? And I think that is the sort of difficult uh, part. Now, the re- it's not that the founders are bad people or anything like that. It turns out, and we know this, of course, from three decades of social psychology, that when decision makers think about something that they desire, like scale, like growth, becoming bigger, and doing it sort of faster, the difficulty is they think in a very abstract way. And when you think in a very abstract way, so you think of footprint-related metrics, the things we talk about in our book, so you oversimplify. You actually really aren't thinking too much about the concrete, nitty-gritty sorts of issues that you need to deal with as you scale. So let me give you an example. In one organization that I was, um, that I had occasion to study, they rapidly scaled. They rapidly were going into different markets. Each market was a city. But what they were doing is they were ramping up in each market is they would go there for two, three days, interview a bunch of people, quickly establish a team uh, in the city. And the idea was we better do it quick. If we don't do it quick and get the land grab going, somebody else is actually going to orchestrate the land grab and we won't have any crumbs for us at the table. Now, the danger with something like this is it can be self-fulfilling. So what you do is you go on a land grab mode, you do things very quickly, you ramp up very fast, and in this case, the organization actually hired a lot of its salespeople from Amway. Right. Now, I don't know about you, you know, it's not that Amway people are bad. They certainly are good people, but they have a business to run. Yes. And if they're working for you, they're basically doing two jobs. And you can imagine the problem. Yes, yeah. Are they the people who are going to worry about the customer? Are they the ones who are actually going to worry about the culture and mindset of the organization? On and on and on. So I think uh, you want to be very, very careful as to how you grow. Startups, for example, make this routine mistake. You ask them, how are you going to hire people who program? And the first thing they sort of tell you is, um, great, we'll give them a quiz. And you say, wonderful. And then they need to hire salespeople. And you say, well, how are you going to hire a salesperson? They look at you and say, of course, we're going to give them a quiz too. And you say, look, I've never heard of a salesperson being hired on the basis of a quiz, and I'm not sure what kind of predictive value it would have. I can understand, certainly for coding tasks. But you see the problem that I'm alluding to of dropping the very tools that made you successful? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's very interesting that in a, a profit making organization, um, assuming that you've got good, you know, cost uh, figures and so forth, you can reasonably calculate perhaps, uh, you know, the implications of closing down a part of the uh, organization, uh, impacting revenues or, you know, things like that. It may be more difficult um, in in a uh, social uh, enterprise where absolutely, where, absolutely. Where, I mean, you know, most you know, take for instance a simple thing like, uh, uh, you know, improving a sense of self accountability. Yes, you're a social entrepreneur. You're moving into, you know, the bottom of the pyramid, and I'm assuming that as an extreme case. Uh, and you're hiring people, and you think, well, the way to create accountability is 
to do what you would do in a normal enterprise, which is to give people targets and this, that, and the other. And you think, okay, that's going to work. It's very unlikely it's going to work. I mean, for instance, these individuals may or may not be accustomed to working at such a tempo, such a rhythm. And I was just actually reminded a few weeks ago by this executive who runs a company called Plantronics. For instance, they own um, manufacturing facilities in Tijuana. And I was asking one of their presidents, I said, how do you create accountability amongst your workforce that's largely blue-collar? They haven't been to college. They haven't been to school. They haven't done any of these things. How do you get them to feel accountable? And, you know, this guy says, well, it turns out that the most effective way to make them feel accountable is to give each one of them a business card that they could give to other people when they were asked as to what is it that they do. And I said, how does that improve their sense of accountability? And he said, oh, you have no idea, Professor. When the relatives ask them, where do you work? They actually take out the visiting card with pride because it actually makes them matter. It actually tells them they're able to articulate what their responsibility and role is. And they're constantly thinking about the organization. And it's a marker of accountability that they can constantly touch and is sort of close to them, either in their wallet or, for that matter, in their pocket. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to work, obviously, in every organization. But look at how creative the person was thinking of creating felt accountability amongst a blue-collar population, but first he really understood that blue-collar population and then did something that made sense. Yes, that's very, that's very interesting. That's, this is really... Uh, but, so, but, yeah. These are the things that social entrepreneurs ought to do. Yes, yes. So, you know, the thing with social entrepreneurs is they all want to have impact. You ask them, well, how do I do this? And they'll tell you, well, uh, you know, I want to change the lives of a million people. And that's a wonderful goal. And then you say, well, how are you going to do that? And then they say, well, we're establishing our outlets or our centers or however you define the organization, branches or whatever. And you say, how many people are there in a branch? And uh, let's say 25 people in a branch, uh, you know, they sort of, let's say, 500 customers. And you say, well, how many branches do you need to create to serve a million people? And very quickly you do the math and you say, my God, getting these branches going, uh, you know, uh, I can easily see you setting up the first 20 branches, uh, but going from 20 to 200, can you just imagine the real estate complications? Absolutely. No, it's you know, yeah. Can you imagine doing it in another country altogether, Fergus? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you're yeah. doing it in, like, Uganda. I mean, you have no idea of, like, what it means to actually do a real estate transaction. Yeah. Just because somebody signed a paper doesn't mean it makes sense. And so all of a sudden, then you're thinking and saying, wait a minute, instead of me directly providing the care or the service, maybe I need to think of franchising opportunities. Because there's already a big legacy infrastructure in place. I don't need to create another point of sale to kind of get this done. You see what I mean? Oh, absolutely. No, no, it's very interesting. So a, a lot of it is you really want to think about how you, you, you've got to, as we talk about in the book, and I don't seek to repeat myself, you really need to kind of figure out how to fight this ground war. And what that requires is 
close attention to tools, close attention to doing things. Let me give you an example. I was kind of teaching in our executive program for social entrepreneurs. One of the firms was a microfinance firm from Bali. So I said, you know, how many people really pay the loans? He said, well, we need to actually have a big infrastructure to verify the application of the loans and then, uh, you know, make sure it's, we chase them and we follow them and so on. And I said, for every loan or every 10 loans, how many bodies do you need to do this? And very quickly, when you listen to this person, you realize the amount of monitoring and supervision by hiring additional people is prohibitively expensive. You can do that for the first 10 outlets. Can you actually do that for the next 200 branches? The guy's going to die, I mean, you know, because uh, it's too much overhead. So he said, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, you're the guy from Bali. You tell me. I said, how many of your offices are actually located close to uh, Bali, Balinese temple, for instance? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, look, if you locate your office or branch or outlet close to a temple, the social norms that operate in a temple, they actually have powerful spillover effects. You rarely find people doing bad things next to a church. Yes, that's very interesting. So my hypothesis would be uh, the farther away your offices are from a temple in Bali, the more problems you're going to have with your loan. And the guy looks at me and says, my God, I've never thought of it. And I said, why not? Yeah. No. Actually, so you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah. So we, yeah. Actually, we, we have to. So one of the things that social entrepreneurs need to do is they really need to kind of think of how do they harness social norms so that they can actually get the desired outcome. Right. Otherwise, you can kind of mindlessly be on this quest of, creating, hiring more people, getting uh, supervisors, getting coordinators, and so on. Because as we suggest in the book, uh, Fardo, the real thing about excellence is it's all about people doing the right thing when nobody's watching over their shoulder. Yes. And so that those are the things that one needs to sort of figure out. And part of what tends to happen is Sometimes social entrepreneurs, precisely because they're advocates, they have a point of view, they might actually get cognitively fixated and find it hard, therefore, to relinquish the tools that have worked for them in a previous phase. I suppose experimentation is, is, is uh, you know, an important idea as well, because what's worked for you before um, you know, you know, will work, and the temptation is to repeat that, but to to try and find new processes, new ways of working, new you know ideas. You have to try a certain number, I suppose, to 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 find the ones that are going to serve you. Absolutely. In fact, this is something we talk about in our book. We call it Catholicism versus Buddhism. As you scale, is scaling largely a replication quest? Or is it actually creating variation? So where are you calling me from? Are you in the U.S.? Are you overseas? Or? London. Okay. I thought as much with a name like Fergal. I thought <laughs> I it was a high probability event you were yeah. uh, somewhere in that neck of the woods. <laughs> so, you know, think of England. I mean, think of the extraordinary spatial variation. Like would something that would have worked 
in the south of England work in Wales or Cornwall or Scotland? Very unlikely. Yeah. And so you've got to kind of customize, you've got to sort of change all of these things. And again, all of this is part of kind of what I would call relinquishing the tools, this extraordinary spatial kind of variation. People think of England as homogenous, but at least I've been there many times, my God. Uh, you know, when I'm in Yorkshire, the difference between Yorkshire and, let's say, uh, Sussex is like night and day. Yes, yes, yeah. And people speak differently. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's such huge variation. Now, can you think the same thing is going to work in both places? I think not. Yes, yes, yes. So, you know, you, what we've got to do is we've really got to kind of... So a lot of these ventures, they start out as Catholic and pretty soon they realize, oh my God, we've got to create these guardrails. Right. That allow people to do local variation, but it's not yet a system where I'm letting a thousand flowers bloom all by themselves. Yes, yes. I mean, exactly. yeah, yes. I mean, what, what, what do you make of the observation that people often say, you know, uh, rightly that there, there, you know, there are very few, you know, social uh, enterprise or you know, nonprofits the scale of you know General Electric or IBM or you know really huge multinational, um, you know, or or just what, however you define large. Um, um, to what extent? Is that about um, the the, uh, the the for profit versus the not for profit? Um, uh, and to what extent is it? Uh, have you any thoughts on 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 the you know that observation? Right. I mean, you certainly have large organizations. A good example of a large organization is like the American Cancer Society, or you can think of the Girl Scouts of America. They're large. I mean, they have members and they straddle so many chapters and states and so forth. They're actually huge. So, so there's certainly a lot. The catch in the non-profit area is if you want to become really large, you really have to figure out how to scale scale. Let me give you an example. In India, for instance, there's an organization called Akshay Patra. And what they do is if you give them 20 U.S. dollars, they can feed a high school kid in India for an entire year. Okay, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. They feed a million three school kids a year. Wow. And when I talked to the CEO and I said, my God, you guys are doing amazingly well. He said, no, we need to scale up to 100 million. How the hell do we scale up to 100 million? And there you have the problem. Yes, yeah. Now, there's another organization I met a couple of days ago, it's a beautiful organization called Rural Shores. So what they are doing is, they're saying in the big cities of India, why do, we, why do we need to have call centers there where real estate is expensive? Why can't we actually take jobs to people where they live? So you might live in a small town, and what they'll do is they'll say, you know, we'll set up a small call center, it'll employ 200 people, we'll train you, and then you have to work. So that's a very different approach to scaling, if you see what I mean. Yes, I mean... So they're, creating, they're creating lots of little uh, centers like this in various parts of India. Right now, they're actually 
they have 20 of them, they want to go up to 200, but they're being very smart because what they realize is within each town, you cannot have an organization or a call center that actually employs more than 200 people. And the reason is more than 200, you actually things become impersonal, bureaucratic, inflexible. They want to keep it nimble. And I was asking the founder of this organization, how do you know your company is working well? Uh, he actually put it really, really well. And he said, you know, I actually visited this new call center of ours, and I was amazed to actually to, to see two young girls uh, in their early 20s ride up on a scooter. And they parked the scooter, and the one who was driving the scooter actually had the keychain on her index finger, and she was twirling it around. And that's when I realized that was the whole point of my call center, that what they were going to do was my call centers were going to create freedom, autonomy, confidence in young women such as these. Well, thank you very much, Huggy, for taking the time today to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.